Redbox Media Programming is brought to you by Jack Kane Ford. Find your next Ford Tough vehicle at KaneFord.com. Woodhill Community Center. Have a hand in the heart of the city. Support their mission with your donations at WoodhillCommunityCenter.org. Toyota on Nicholasville Superstore. Online consultants are standing by right now to help you find your next Toyota. Visit ToyotaOnNicholasville.com. Lexus of Lexington. Home of the best-selling Lexus IS. Find yours today at LexusOfLexington.com. You're listening to Chicken Ann on Finance. Willing the good of Welcome to another edition of Chuck and Ann on Finance, brought to you by IIE Financial. IIE Financial, willing the good of another. Visit us online at IIEFinancial.com and then give the offices a call at 832-953-4998. That's 832-953-4998. You'll notice that this show is a little bit different than our previous episodes, and that is because this is a little bit different. This is a special episode where Chuck and I interview Mr. Joseph Pierce. After years of following Mr. Pierce's work, many of which grace our bookshelves, we were able to meet Mr. Pierce in person at the Chesterton Conference in Ponchatoula, Louisiana, back in March. And on this episode, we focus on Mr. Pierce's book called Small is Still Beautiful, Economics as if Families Mattered. And we discuss current economics, both macro and micro, how individuals treat and use money in both commerce and investing, and how they should treat and use money in commerce and investing, and the importance of the family unit itself and what it has to do with society and the economy. So we hope you enjoy this special treat of an episode. And here we go. So here we are with our interview with Joseph Pierce, and we are super excited uh, that we've got such an amazing guest with us today. Uh, we we love having guests on the show, and and this one we actually got to see in person, and it was like a, a no brainer. We said we gotta we gotta have him on the show. That's right, um, Mr. Joseph Pierce is joining us. He is a native of England. Joseph Pierce is a senior editor at the Augustan Institute, senior fellow and journal editor at the Cardinal Newman Society, and Tolkien and Tolkien and Lewis Chair in the Literary Studies at Holy Apostles College and Seminary. That's a mouthful, isn't it? Yeah. He is <laughs> editor of the St. Austin Review, an international review of Catholic culture, series editor of the Ignatius Critical Editions, executive director of the Catholic Courses, and senior contributor at the Imaginative Conservative. He's authored so many books, um, including bestsellers such as The Quest for Shakespeare, Tolkien, Man and Myth, and uh, which actually was... Is is on our bookshelf. Yep. <laughs> and um, the unmasking of Oscar Wilde. He's done amazing biograph uh, biographies, and um, he is joining us today. So, Joseph, welcome to the show. Oh, it's a pleasure to be with you. Yeah, you know why? I I loved a lot of the things we had the we had the pleasure to see you in beautiful Louisiana. Was that your first time to 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 that Chesterton conference in Louisiana when I saw you there? Uh, no, I've been to all of them. I'm not. I think that was that the fourth. I, I'm losing count, but I've been to been to all of them anyway. My favorite part about that was the alligator across the street. I'm just saying the the fact that they've got an alligator in a cage across the street just just sums it all up. 
That's right. <laughs> so, you know, one of the things that I, I loved about what you talked about and, you know, you you spoke a lot about this concept of Chestertonian economics. And from an economic standpoint, I thought that you had some amazing insights that I think is really, really cool to to unpack and kind of unravel specifically around this small is beautiful concept and, and, and talking about small business. And, you know, you are you, you are so well versed in that. And I would love if you if you wouldn't mind just kind of recounting. You taught, told a story about the beer in the, in the UK and, and the beer industry. And I will tell you that my ears perked up immediately about that. <laughs> well, my, mine always do not just my 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 ears, but my taste buds perk up <laughs> as well. And I'm, uh, I'm talking about beer. Well, yeah. So basically, to give the practical example in my book, "Small is Still Beautiful," which is subtitled "Economics If Families Mattered," there's a chapter called "Small Beer," uh, and what it does is it, it charts um, the growth of the microbrew craft. Uh, ale industry in England and then subsequently in the United States. And what I think is encouraging about it is that in the early 1970s, when uh, this whole process began, uh, the the whole of the British brewing industry was in the hands of just three or four macro-sized breweries producing, quite frankly, very mediocre ale. So there were four Englishmen in a bar in uh, in, England uh, Ireland in Dublin. It sounds like the beginning of a joke, but it isn't. It's the beginning of something <laughs> much, much more exciting. Um, that, that these four Englishmen were basically uh, crying into their Guinness, weeping into their Guinness at how difficult it was to get a decent pint of ale in England these days. And they decided to fat form an organization called the Campaign for Real Ale. And this was in the early 70s. And within a few years, they had 30,000 members. Quite a few of their members became microbrewers. Um, and uh, they lobbied Parliament and got the law changed to allow access to the market in British pubs of these microbrewed ales. And a couple of those uh, those uh, microbrew breweries became beer consultants, uh, which actually helped other people to set up small breweries. And they came to the United States. And I like to think that uh, they had something to do with the spread of the microbrew industry across the United States. So I like to think, and I think this is very encouraging for all of us, if we we bemoan the state of the modern world, that four men in a pub can actually change the whole uh, aspect of one part of the economy. So instead of uh, an economy now dominated by a few giants, we have an economy which is revitalizing local economies in small towns across uh, the UK and across the United States. Yeah, I, I totally agree with that. You know, as as small business owners ourselves and, and as people that are in small business, we we look at how big business affects everything that that we touch. Right. I mean, especially living here in America. Uh, what what is your what is your thoughts on? I guess I'll call it the trajectory of small business here in the U.S. Well, I, I think basically the key thing that we have to do um, as individuals and I don't like to call us as uh, as human beings, um, either producers or, co- or or consumers, that seems to simplify and reduce who we are and the dignity of the human person. But what we have to do as as as, as human beings is to be a, play an active part in the economy. And w- really, with every dollar we spend, uh, which and obviously we spend dollars every day of our lives. With every dollar we spend, we're either making the world a worse place or a better place. So if we want a world where the economy has thriving local economies, 
Uh, and thriving local economies will contribute to a thriving local community, and a thriving local community will, will contribute to a thriving local politics, which will lead to a power being devolved away from, from the federal government. If we want to see those changes, we have to, be, we have to actually be participants you know, on a daily basis in getting things changed. And that means that the dollars we spend need to be supporting local businesses and small businesses as opposed to the, the, the global corporations. So, and I totally agree with you. And I think that there's a lot of avenues now. There's more avenues for small business owners with, with the internet. And I mean, through Amazon, they can connect, they can connect, you know, to, to people all over the world. But as an investor, I will say this, and this is really where I think the challenge becomes, what, what, where do you think that challenge becomes for, say, an individual investor who wants to invest in small business, but his, his or her main avenue is going to be the stock market, which is going to typically be very large businesses. What, what do you think is, is a good avenue for somebody to look at? If, if they're an investor and they want to invest in small business rather than just spending their dollars, but they want to look at that as an opportunity, do you have any thoughts on that? Well, yeah, and I, I do have thoughts on that, but I'm a, a little bit loath to, to wax too eloquent because I'm talking to two people who know much more about it than I do. Um, I wouldn't uh, call myself in, in any respect an expert in uh, investing. But what I would say is that what I have done, we have just put our money um, into uh, local um, uh, producers here, local farmers, uh, local uh, uh, dairies. Um, and, uh, you know, it's probably from the perspective of, of a return on the buck is not what you would call a wise uh, investment. So it really is a, 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 a really about what's the most important thing. Do we actually want to use our our dollars to make the world better? Or do you want to use our dollars to earn more dollars? Um, and of course, there's nothing wrong with that. There's nothing wrong with investment. And, um, you know, they just need, we need to have strategies where we know that our money is not going to go to immoral things. And I know that there are fund managers out there that are socially conscious, uh, that are religiously conscious, and that don't um, invest their uh, investors' money in companies that um, are um, uh, involved in, in uh, unethical practices. So, you know, this question of, of looking at that aspect, in other words, it's about investing morally. To come back to, 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 to the square one from which, you know, everything else goes, our, our dollars are, do either make the world a better or a worse place. So every uh, dollar we spend is a moral act. There's nothing morally neutral in the market. So we do have to, if we have, if we have money to invest, we do have to realize that, that there's a moral question involved in where we invest it. And obviously folks such as you will be better able to tell people uh, that than I am. Yeah, you know, I I totally agree with you. I've it's it's funny because I think there's a challenge sometime on that moral side of investment because you know if you've got a list of companies you may or may not want to invest in, most people don't even know what they're investing in because they wind up buying these blended funds and tons of different companies and things that that uh, that they don't know what they're investing in and they wind up basically just jumping into the the giant Wall Street machine, which then. Then uh, they they just become a number and a cog in the wheel, if you will. Yeah. So the point is that we have to uh, first of all we have to make we have to make two choices. I think either we have to be per much more personally involved in, uh, in in seeing where our investment is is going. In other words, to actually know the companies that we're investing money in, know something about them. And if we're too busy for that, or just not inclined to want to get involved with that, then we do have to actually find someone who is going to manage our finances and manage our investments, who is aware of the um, uh, of the ethical questions that we want um, 
address. So if I don't want my money going to uh, abortion providers, or I don't want my money going uh, towards um, uh, companies that are that are um, basically trying to pursue social agendas which are contrary to that which is healthy to the, to the family and therefore to the long-term uh, solidarity of society, then I need to either either be involved myself in the decision-making process or find someone who I trust who will actually ensure that my money is not being invested in places that's making the world a worse place instead of a better one. Yeah. I'd like to um, ask you specifically about your book, Small is Still Beautiful. Um, and it you, I, it, I think it came from inspiration from Schumacher's Small is Beautiful, um, and which I think some of the themes of what he wrote about um, we're sort of talking to right now in terms of like the idolatry of giantism and or giantism rather and rampant consumerism. And I think when we're talking about getting stuck in the Wall Street cog, you know, being a cog in the Wall Street wheel and things like that, we can get caught up and not look for the finer details. So when you were, you know, drawing, I assume it forget for forgive me if this is an incorrect assumption, but drawing inspiration from small is beautiful and then writing in terms of, you know, current our current state. Um I I was wondering if you could just speak to that a little bit, you know, in terms of your inspiration and how you developed Small is Still Beautiful and why you felt it was necessary to write such a book at this time. Yeah, well, one of the, the important things about uh, about uh, history and, and our place within it is that we're always standing on the shoulders of giants, which is why a large part of what I do is, is, is a defense of the great works, the great books of of civilization, because they, they are that's the foundation upon which we stand. And if we treat those with contempt, we just reduce ourselves to a, to, to a sort of a primal soup. Uh, of, uh, of, uh, of of basically being ignorant about who we are as human beings and that where we fit into the cosmos. So that being so, you know, I'm not a trained economist, but E.F. Schumacher was. And E.F. Schumacher wrote a million seller, a best, international bestseller back in 1973 when it was published, called Small is Beautiful, Economics if People Mattered. Um, and uh, it, it revolutionized the way many people saw the economy. He was a former Marxist economist who saw the error of his ways. Um, and he saw that the problem basically was um, was uh, a way of looking at economics, which doesn't actually um, see the difference between intrinsic value and, and market price and how that can cause all sorts of problems. And there were other things. But he championed small businesses as opposed to big businesses. And so he was hugely influential upon my own development in terms of my economic and political ideas. And so I'm standing on his shoulders. The thing with a book such as Schumacher's, um, is, of course, that it relies upon data and statistics. And although the principles don't change and the principles are as true today as they were then, the, the, uh, the, the data with which we uh, prove the principles does change. So I thought it was necessary to, to write a book called Small is Still Beautiful, looking at Schumacher's principles, but with 21st century data and statistics. So that's basically what, what my book is. It's standing on his, on his shoulders, but if you like seeing things from the 21st century perspective. Yeah. And I think that that difference between intrinsic value and market price is something we see in the markets all the time. We talk about overvaluation and undervaluation. And once a company will release its shares to the marketplace, it's really at the the beck and call of supply and demand and what people are willing to pay, not necessarily the intrinsic value of, of the company. And, and, and I think that 
further emphasizes the point of peeping, people getting, you know, swept up in, in Wall Street and not necessarily looking at where their individual specific dollars are, are being invested and spent. Well, the, I think the problem is that if we're going to uh, allow the market to be our judge and jury and our sage, uh, the problem with that is the market has no concept of the future or of the past, for that matter. It really measures the situation today with regard to what people are prepared to pay for certain things. Uh, and uh, to, 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 fit, to, to, to feel that the world is somehow in safe hands when the only uh, leadership we're, we're prepared to take is from, a, uh, some, uh, from an entity, from a, a mechanism that has no, uh, no um, uh, concept of the future. Uh, is, is, is very, very dangerous. I, I, I apologize for that, by the way. I meant to turn that off before we came on. We just ignore it, okay? Well, that's probably going to go to voicemail. It, it's an uh, old school I phone. Think, yeah. <laughs> it's an old school phone. It's an old school landline. And um, uh, I do try to keep things as basic as possible. And I'm hoping there's no one on the end of the line there. It's, there isn't. That's good. Thanks be to God. Otherwise, they might be <laughs> a two-minute message. Um, and it would have been embarrassing. I, I, I beg your pardon. Um, no worries. So, so, the, so the key thing is that the market is myopic. Uh, it has no vision of the future. So, therefore, by itself, and of course, the market, you know, market mechanism has a value. It allows us to see certain things, but it doesn't allow us to see everything. And so, we put all of our trust in a market mechanism. We're basically making ourselves blind to the bigger picture as regards the economy, uh, the politics, and indeed the society in which we live. And I, I, I was wondering if you could comment a little bit, too, about, you know, we with with the market expanding and the economy expanding, corporations getting bigger um, there. There was an allusion to or you might have just said it right out. But as companies get bigger and corporations get bigger, um, it sort of leads you down a socialistic path. So I was wondering if you could comment a little bit about that, about the expansion of corporations as well and what that does to an economy and society. Yeah, I think the way we view uh, global economics and global politics in the 21st century has to be radically different from the way it was viewed 100 years ago. So 100 years ago, uh, most people believe we had to make a choice between, um, should we say, capitalism and communism or socialism. It's a choice between one or the other. But as we find uh, the way things have developed, um, the big business and big government are very comfortable together. Um, they're, they're basically in, in, in bed with each other. And um, organizations you like think? The, um, <laughs> Just maybe? <laughs> <laughs> there are no babies. It's a sterile relationship. Um, <laughs> um, but especially in terms of freedom, it just destroys it, does not give birth to it. Um, but basically, so you find in organizations such as um, the European Union and the burgeoning federal government, uh, and even in organizations like the, the United Nations, the, the big business is basically manipulating things in, in, in concert with international financial institutions like the International Monetary Fund and the World Bank. And it's all being done for the benefits of the global elites and not for ordinary people or ordinary nations. So we have to realize now it's not a choice between big business or big government. It's a choice between big business and big government together or working towards smaller government and smaller business. Yeah. And when drawing back on the example of the the four Englishmen in Dublin and your beer story from the beginning, you know, a lot of this for especially for listeners at home, they may be thinking, OK, you know, I'm I'm a husband. I just go to work. I provide for my kids. I'm listening to this. This all seems very ideological and I may or may not agree with it or whatever. But like, what can I do 
you know, at home. I may be a, you know, a mother or, you know, whatever. But what, how, how does this um, ideological conversation that we're having, which is very real, but, but seems perhaps very lofty to someone who may be listening at home, how does that affect individuals and more specifically the family? Yeah, I don't, I, I don't actually like the word ideology and I don't use, I think Marxism is an ideology, free market uh, capitalism is an ideology. But what we want is a healthy society where healthy human families form the very foundation and the fabric of that society. A society which destroys the, the fabric of the family is ultimately committing suicide. So we've got to have strong local communities. The family is the basis. It is, first of all, it is the uh, strong local community. The stronger that lo most local of communities is, the family, the stronger the local communities around it will be. So basically, it's, it's ultra practical. Do we actually want a world that's dissolving and disintegrating into uh, into an, an anarchy, which is going to be disastrous for everybody? Or do we actually want to uh, look for a better way of doing things, which is to restore the position of the family and therefore to make the economy and the politics a servant of the family and not the other way around? Yeah, I, I totally agree with that. You know, every every societal curse, I, I genuinely believe this and not all of them. Yeah, most of them. They all they all start with what's not happening at, at a at a familial level. What's 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 broken in the home then winds up being broken later on. And and from, you know, whether it's economics or education or whatever it happens to be that pulls the family apart. I think that that is really the biggest sign of weakness that that we see in general. I mean, is that something that, that you that you see it, that's getting worse? And especially now, I mean, you live in the U.S. now, but you lived most of your life in the UK. Is it something you see differently here than you did there? Well, I mean, there are variations, thanks be to God, from, from one uh, nation to another. That's one of the beauties in the world. Alexander Solzhenitsyn spoke about the various nations in the world as beautiful flowers in the, in, in, in the human garden. And uh, what we see with globalism is trying to turn the whole thing into a huge agribusiness where we only grow one type of food. We only actually speak the one type of language. Uh, we don't have any 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 uh, variation, which is healthy. But I, I, what I want to, to address that basically is what we see going on here. And this is an irony and a tragedy uh, and a comedy. Um, is that the uh, the socialists on the on the left and the and the globalists on the right? So the capitalists and the communists, if you want to use that terminology, are now working together. Because, for instance, let me give you some examples. Um, the the Marxists um, believe in a radical individualism, which uh, hates the family as being some way patriarchal uh, and wants to dissolve the family. So basically, human beings, when they're allowed to be born at all, are going to be raised by the state effectively. Um, uh, and, th and so that radical individualism is at war with the family. But global corporations actually work through their propaganda, and their propaganda is what we call commercials and advertising, and it is propaganda. Um, it's not telling us the truth, it's telling us what they want us to see. Uh, what, it, what it advocates is we all, as individuals, are as greedy as possible. We all do everything we can to gratify ourselves above others. It's not about self-sacrifice, it's about sacrificing others to the self. Now, what you find here is global corporations and, 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 um, and uh, Marxists working hand in hand, and that's why they're both at war with the fabric of the family. And it's only by defending the family we can actually defend ourselves from the anarchy that's going to be the consequence of this radical individualism.
That's like a mic drop. That's good. That's a good quote, brother. I'm impressed. So who would you say, you know, you have got a litany of, of books and a litany of authors and influential people that, that you've read. From history, the, the ones that you've read or, or, or studied, who do you think is the, is the one that if somebody were to just get started in thinking about, uh, about you know, thinking small and more along the family lines, and, and maybe they are, maybe they're Catholic, maybe they're not, who, do you, who would you recommend that they maybe pick up a book and start reading? Well, if they if they if they want to go dive straight into the uh, the economic aspects of things, then there's nothing better than Schumacher's book, and dare I say, it, my update of Schumacher's book. Um, but certainly, uh, if we want to know how these things work at grassroots levels in terms of principles, the paper and encyclicals are invaluable. So the the, the encyclicals uh, issued by uh, popes such as Leo the Thirteenth, uh, Pius the Eleventh, John Paul the Second. Um, they lay the foundations for, for ideas of subsidiarity and solidarity. And if we really want to get um, serious about this, uh, if we read those encyclicals and get it into our mind what the church means by subsidiarity, which is basically that the family is at the heart of economics and politics and that uh, all the economics and politics has to serve the family and not vice versa. And then the other, uh, that's subsidiarity. But then solidarity is that we all have to be working uh, not merely for ourselves and for our families, but for the common good. Mm-hmm. Uh, and th- that's what solidarity is, that we need to be working with the love of neighbor in mind as well as a lo- the love of our own family in mind. Yeah, and I, I think that there, at least in, in my community, um, when when it comes to not just, well, it's my community, our community, um, when, not just when it comes no, to... No, what's mine is yours and what's yours is yours. <laughs> Amen. That's a good working marriage right here. That's right. Yeah. Not just, uh, you know, our community, but I think that, and when, when we're talking about commercialism and buying things, you know, and, and things of that nature, I'm seeing in even just our own community that people are really trying to, um, call it detoxing from the American dream, right? We're, we're all trying to, um, like we're homeschooling, um, our, our children. And there is a growing, rich community of, of homeschoolers just in our, our town. The overwhelming percentage of children who are homeschooled is, is, is quite shocking, um, especially coming from up north. Uh, but I think that there is uh, maybe a pendulum swing, call it, you know, back towards that small and detoxing and I just need people to like, just stay out of my way, you know, get like, get back to the family. And, um, are, are you seeing, do, do you see that in, in the culture? Or do you feel like, cause that's, I feel like that's a little bit more of a, of a positive swing, even though it may be coming from a small grassroots, you know, type well, place. Everything you've said, I completely agree with, except the final subclause of that final sentence, which is even though, mm-hmm. I mean, it's not even though, it's the only way it's going to happen. Yeah. Um, so basically, that change has to start from the grassroots. If the public school system is is, is basically uh, poisoning our children with bad ideas and bad bad habits and bad mm-hmm. ethics, the best thing to do is to pull them out. And when you pull them out of the public schools, you have an option. You find a good private school, a good parochial school, or you homeschool. Uh, my wife and I have also homeschooled our children. The growth of the homeschooling movement over the last 30 years has been uh, uh, another example of small is beautiful working. 
And there are lots of examples of small dispute people working, um, and we should actually take encouragement from that. But again, we need to be part of those movements. We need to be supporting those movements because this is way, the way we change society for the better. Mm-hmm. Awesome. Well, Joseph, how uh, how can people get to know a little bit more about you, and where's a great place that they can that they can uh, reach you and get some more information? Well, uh, someone's actually designing a personal website for me, but it's not ready yet. So I won't give you that information. But I do edit a magazine called the St. Austin Review. And if, you, if, if uh, people go to staustinreview.org, and that's just the ST for Austin, and Austin as in Texas, staustinreview.org. Uh, I'm not saying that Austin, Texas is holy, by the way. It's an abbreviation for Augustine. staustinreview.org. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so or the, the other uh, website I'm very heavily involved in is faithandculture.com. Excellent. So faithandculture.com or staustinreview.org. Joseph, thank you so much for taking the time. I know you're a super busy man. Uh, we are so grateful uh, that, that you're able to, to, to be here with us and, uh, and, and really just glad that we got a chance to meet you in person. And hopefully our, our listeners can, can get a chance, if they haven't already seen it, to go and peruse some of the amazing writing that you have done. Uh, you have, there's more books on our bookshelf that are written by you than we even knew we had <laughs> once we came home. We started looking on our bookshelf and said, oh, look at all those. <laughs> yeah, and I really do encourage everybody to, you know, to, to look up. You can even just Google Joseph's name and his many, 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 many publications and also series on EWTN, um, et cetera, et cetera, will, will come up and, um, explore, explore the work that, that Joseph has done. He's really written some amazing biographies, especially, um, on, on some people that are personally very near and dear to my heart. So I thank you very much, uh, Joseph. It's, it's been a pleasure and, uh, an honor to, to have you on the show today. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. God bless you. All right. St. Anthony the Abbot. Pray for us. us. Peace be with you. Redbox Media Programming is brought to you by... We want to help others, especially in places of strife, such as the Holy Land, where Christianity is dwindling by the day. But how to help? Here's an easy way. Buying products through the Holy Land gift shop. Every product you purchase at myfranciscan.org shop helps Christians support their families and stay in the Holy Land. Olive wood, embroidery, spices, and many more authentic products from the Holy Land are available right now at myfranciscan.org shop. The Holy Land Gift Shop, bringing the Holy Land home. I learned how many people we could help and how good you feel after you've helped others. I know Lent is about giving, so I want to give. These kids are talking about CRS Rice Bowl, a Lenten program known by generations of Catholic families. Children love it because they experience different cultures and gain a lasting impression of the people they are helping. You can bring CRS Rice Bowl into your home and experience the joy of seeing your children or grandchildren find new meaning in Lent. Visit crsricebowl.org to get started. Rice Bowl inspired me to pray more and to pray for those who are less fortunate. Thank you for listening to Breadbox Media. Find more about us at breadboxmedia.com.